Hey, what's up, everyone? I just got done with an interview with Jazz Jewel. Um, it's a long one, folks. It's a long one, but uh, it was definitely really interesting. On this episode of Social Jello, uh, we talk about prostitution and feminism, and Jazz Jewel is an escort, and she shares her story about how she got into the escort industry. Um, she identifies as an escort, so out of respect for that, that's what I'm going to say. Um, she shares her story about how she got involved, how she got involved in some activism, and um, and she kind of shares about, talks about how that works, and within that it was really interesting. Uh, she's very well spoken and educated, and it was really an interesting podcast to do. Um, what I want to say also to some of our listeners, some new news before I get into it, uh, please check out my website, www.socialjello.com. And if you want to support my show, I'd appreciate it. Just go to the bottom banner. I recently got sponsored by Amazon. So it's really easy. You just jump on, you click on the Amazon banner, shop for whatever you want. It's not a cookie. There's no scam. Um, just when you do that, it sends a few pennies. I'm in Japan, a few yen that way. So, uh, without putting it off any further, here is Jazz Jewel. Hey Jazz, how's it going? It's going well, how are you? I'm good, I'm good. Uh, first of all, I want to thank you for being on the show. Uh, I, I know that... Um, thank you for having me. I know it took a little while to, to schedule everything with, with the different the time differences between where I'm at and where you're at. But um, but yeah, definitely thanks for coming on the show. And uh, I guess to open up, um, I mentioned earlier that you work in the as an escort. Um, yes. What exactly does that mean? That means that it has a couple of meanings. I suppose for the general public and legally it states that i am a woman that sells my time um so people men will uh contact me via my website and they purchase my time now as an escort um it's part of the sex industry so obviously uh i'm selling more than my time and um that can be reflected in the reviews um, that are written about me or uh, what clients say in general. I don't know if I should really say it out loud just because of where I'm located. Well, that's and how fine. that could in- implicate myself. Yeah, no, I, I don't want you to implicate yourself. I, as I mentioned right. earlier off camera, sure. if, there, if, there's, <laughs> if there's anything that that is, is, um, is going to... Don't don't say anything that's gonna that's gonna hurt Absolutely. what you do. So I sell yes, I sell my time for a living. All right. And what may happen during that time is between two consenting adults behind closed doors, uh, which is also referred to as BCD time. BCD time. Beh- oh, behind closed doors as an acronym. Behind okay. Okay. So the so I know that um. Well, actually, I don't know. That's why I'm going to ask. But <laughs> um, so the legalities you were saying earlier about the legalities of the es- of of escorting and 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 those kind of services. Um, 
they fall I, I know that each state has different laws for that okay and without incriminating what you're doing whatever um, how does that work for someone who's working as an escort how do they navigate the legal terrain if you will that happens through screening um, screening is a process that not all uh, ladies in the industry, and when I say industry, I say escort industry, but I call it the industry, practice. Um, screening is where somebody is interested in seeing me, they contact me. I do email contact only if I get a private message through a website um, or a text message or phone call, I will always refer them back to my site so they know, email me. I want a name, a phone number, and the name of two women in the same thing that I'm in, they've seen previously, that allows me to feel safe in seeing this person, knowing that, number one, they're not you know, law enforcement, which I will refer to as LE, but um, also that they're not and almost more importantly, they're not some freaks, you know, serial killer that's going to hurt me. Uh, that is, to me, equally as important as the legal aspect of it. So I screen these gentlemen, um, and I do contact the providers, you know, also known as escorts, uh, that they have listed as their references. And I, I make sure that these are ladies that I will actually accept a reference from. Uh, and once I'm satisfied that they're okay, that they know and have a brain about the industry, then I ask them, is this guy okay? Have you seen him? Will you see him again? That's the key sentence to me or question. Will you see him again? Um, because everybody's different. What one girl may say yes to, another girl may say no to, so therefore I make up my mind. Once that process is complete, I recontact the client and say, okay, we're good to go. Sometimes it's a process um, that can only take, you know, 10 minutes if they've used a website that actually they belong to, they've already been screened, that I am a member of. I can plug in their information and instantaneously, yes, he's okay. When I have to write other ladies for this information, that can take two, you know, two days to a week. So that's how I ensure that I'm safe. Okay. And you, you, you mentioned earlier to make sure they're not LE. Um, mm -hmm. And is, as you were saying, uh, another, an acronym for law enforcement. How, um, yes. so escorting in itself in, let's say, the area that you're in... <laughs> Um, is it considered legal or illegal? Escorting itself is legal throughout the United States. It's what we choose to do behind closed doors that makes it illegal. If you, for instance, most states require if you are going to list yourself as an escort, you must go and get an escorting license. So you go to the city hall, um, depending on the state, uh, and their laws, it could be a county, a state, or a city issue, um, you find out what you need, and you go get your escorting license. Do ladies do that? No. Not 
as often as the city and state would hope because then it's almost like you're on a list for the for Ellie stating, oh, here I am. This is my address and my legal name. Here we go. <laughs> yeah. So you, you end up, so, pre you're pretty much on a watch list at that point. Uh, well, and you're on a watch. In my belief, um, I have always believed that the minute, unless you know how to set your entire work persona up overseas, you know, offshore servers, every, nothing's based in the United States. Unless you do that from the very beginning, the minute a person puts up an ad or builds a website, and by ad I mean an age-verified ad, um, where you send in your copy of your drive, driver's license to prove you're 18 years or older, um, the police know who you are. Um, it's, it's all a question at the end of following your gut during the screening process and actually with the initial email um, with that. I don't know if I answered the question fully. No, 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 that, 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 that um... But each state and each county, for instance, Cook County, which is uh, where Chicago, Illinois is located, it is a felony to be um, busted for prostitution there in the state of Kansas. It's a misdemeanor, however, when you add the charges, um, escorting without a license, uh, solicitation, if you have a website, they can charge you with soliciting yourself. Um, it just, it mostly depends on, you know, your location. Northern California, where I was living previously, uh, it's a parking ticket. Hmm. You know, so it is different in each, in each state, you know, down to the, each county, what, whatever laws they choose. I have moved from a very liberal place to an extremely conservative uh, state. So now my screening is a lot more tough and I'm adamant. Uh, you will provide me this information or I will not see you. All right. So it sounds like the, the legalities change from place to place depending on where you end up going it kind of you have to navigate each county differently to be able to make sure that you're still kind of working and it really sounds like though it's kind of a gray area of the law if you will it is but it isn't it depends on who you are um who you are in the industry, if you're working for yourself as an independent provider, or if you're working for an agency, um, a girl who may be busted, you know, working for an agency, the police will go after her more so than myself, because they want to get the agency owner. Uh, it, 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 it kind of depends on who you are personally whether you've shown up on the radar of law enforcement. Um, if you keep to yourself, you don't cause troubles legally for yourself. Generally, you're left alone, is my personal opinion. Um, I keep to myself pretty much always. And how long have you been doing this now? Uh, 17 years. Um, it's funny, when I first started, I told myself, a total of 17 years, I have taken a few breaks, uh, 
I said, I'm only going to do this for three years. And here it is. That was 2001. Okay. <laughs> here I am in 2017. <laughs> and um, it's certainly, I haven't continued to do this because I have no other abilities. I have been in professional jobs. I have worked for corporate America. Um, and I just, this, I, I got into it because I had three daughters I was raising alone. And they were in sports, they were in music, and the need for money was there. And I was young, I was beautiful. Actually, at the time when I started, I thought I was too old, and folks were like, oh no, honey, you are just fine. Um, and I stayed because I'm good at it, and I enjoy it, and it's, it's something that I can control. I control my environment. I control who I see, when I see them. Um, I'm fortunate enough to have uh, my name known in many cities, uh, particularly west of the Mississippi in the United States. I haven't really traveled east. Uh, so it's just been, and it's not, for me, I have found it wasn't just about being an escort. Through escorting, I have learned so much about different areas of the of the sex industry such as the tantra world such as you know, bdsm um as well as the psychology of it all some of my clients i met in 2001 and 2 i still see and so it's not there's no relationship other than that business pairing yet a friendship has evolved and genuine care in interest in what's going on in the other person's life just as much as they're interested in mine um i feel more like a a marriage counselor sometimes or just an overall psychologist uh more times than i do a sex worker and you know when i'm in an airport waiting for a flight and somebody makes conversation and they ask me what i do Depending on my mood, I may look at someone and say, I'm the most expensive shrink I've ever met. <laughs> and that's how I feel. <laughs> and you were saying you, and just, just for, I, I always assume that my listeners don't know anything. <laughs> that's fine. I, I hope, that's I'd fine. hope that, I, I, I have faith that my listeners are intelligent people <laughs> and, and they, and they know um, quite a bit, but I, but just in case uh-huh. that I might have people that might be listening and wondering what is tantra? Did you say? <laughs> yes, tantra. It is. Um, oh my goodness, that's a whole basket of worms, and possibly another show. Okay, I um, guess just uh, just just of, not without di- if you don't want to dive into it, but just like maybe a a quick. Uh, Webster's Dictionary diction- <laughs> definition of that? The Jazzalicious definition. That sounds good. Um, basically, for me, Tantra is the act. It's, you know, um, slowing down, being in the moment, being able to fully concentrate meditation is a big part intimacy you know to me tantra is helping people reach intimacy um the focus is not on the act of sex itself more on um 
evolving spiritually and having uh, being oh being able to express yourself in the moment and be with an individual in the moment uh, slowing down from this crazy world we live in is imperative I think to oh I'm losing it uh no, no, I think I think I think that that's yeah. a, that's a good like <laughs> that that's good. I, I think I have an idea. Yeah, I was just I was just trying to because I mean some people are gonna listen to what you're saying and they're gonna wonder. You said I learned a lot about tantra and BDSM. Now I do think BDSM became a little more popular popularized. I may have just made that word up. No, but uh. <laughs> yeah, yeah, because of Fifty Shades of Grey, I think um. That one became a little more pop culture. So, um, but for those of you who might have not read Fifty Shades of Grey, I'm still gonna put it out there. Uh, BDSM is the idea. Uh, let me just use it before I just throw my definition. Yeah, the. I'm just gonna I'm gonna use Wikipedia on this one, and I'm just gonna say that according to Wikipedia, which is never really a great way to start anything, but. It's a variety of often erotic practices or role-playing involving bondage, discipline, dominance, and submission, and also sometimes sadomasochism and other interpersonal dynamics. Um, That is taken actually from the Oxford English Dictionary. That's the definition. Even though it was through Wikipedia, it goes back to the Oxford definition of BDSM, in case some of you were wondering. Okay, so you got what? How? <laughs> how did you? How did you get into this field? Um, was it? You know, it's funny. I was in the eighth grade, and I was sitting at the sewing pool with one of my girlfriends I went to Catholic school with, and we were talking about what we were going to do when we grew up. And this girl said. Um, I'm going to be a high-class escort because they get to travel all over the world, make lots of money, and never pay taxes. And I think that's where I got the first idea of, huh, interesting. Um, then it, I was 27 the first time I became an escort, and I was just in a real crazy situation in my personal life. Um, living with a guy that was just an ass and I kept thinking to myself this is not the way it's supposed to be Um, I felt like I was selling my soul to the devil by living with somebody just to help me cover my bills and I answered an ad in the back of a, of a, a weekly newspaper called the night shift in Kansas City and it said escorts needing needed 18 plus and at the time you know, I was in my late 20s. I thought, I'm too old. Uh, <laughs> and I had no idea what to expect. Being raised in Kansas, one of the most conservative states in the United States, you, we have so many fucked up, um, you know, ideas of what uh, escorting is all about. And I was one of them as well. And so I you know, pictured some crazy looking streetwalker woman, you know, to interview me. And in fact, I showed up to her door. She was in a hotel 
And when she opened the door, I mean, it looked like a model right out of Ralph Lauren. And she grabbed me. Her eyes got huge, and she's like, you're perfect. And um, that began my escorting career. At the time, you know, I was working for an agency, so, you know, they send us out. They get half. I get half. And I loved it. I mean, I just loved it um, that I left. Uh, when I returned to the business um, four years later, I worked for an agency for a very small amount of time. And by the, in that four-year time period, escorting had moved from the yellow pages to the internet and was way more accessible than it had been, you know, in the late 90s. And uh, I became an independent, so I worked for myself. And at that point, um, that really changed things because it's not just, you know, taking phone calls and going out and seeing everybody. It's an entire process. I began running my own business and taking control completely of everything that happens in my environment. And when you, <clears throat> excuse me, when you were working for the agency, that was, um, the agency was ran by a woman or a man? The, um, both, I've worked for three. Um, in the 90s, it was run by two men. And uh, that was very interesting. They were not based in the city where I was working out of, Kansas City. They were actually in different, their call centers and their residences were in different parts of the, of the country. So um, those were two men. Uh, this, when I came back to the industry, I worked for a woman, but she was financed by a man who was kind of gross. Uh, and the third time, um, I left her Gina's agency, the second agency, and went to work for another agency in Kansas City. And that was owned 100% by a woman. And she was very, very cool. Unfortunately, I was too ambitious to keep staying with her. And it was a money thing. I could make more if I did it myself rather than giving 50% of what I was pulling in to someone else for, quite honestly, the only time I've been afraid in the industry was when I worked for an agency mm. working for myself. I've never felt, you know, that pang of fear, like, Oh my God, am I going to die? I had full control of who I saw and you know, whether or not I wanted to see them. Whereas an agency that will send you to anyone. If you have an address, that's where you go. So I learned how to screen on site, so to speak. I get to someone's place and, there were questions you would ask or activities that you would have to have take place in order for, to feel comfortable to go through with the appointment. But as an independent, I don't have to worry about that. I already know, or I believe I know, that the person I'm going to see is safe to see. And you were saying um, there was a time that you feared for your life. Would, would you mind talking about that? Or do you, do you feel comfortable talking um, about that? in Kansas City and it was late at night and um, I knew the I knew the floor number of where he was and the odd thing about clients is that you know I counted the floor levels up 
you know, I'm walking through the parking lot of the hotel, and I could see a single figure standing in this window on the top floor, and I thought, I bet that's him, and it was. And I got into the room and began talking to this man who was, I could tell he was high, uh, but not on wet. Um, it wasn't weed. I mean, I t there's a huge difference. So I sat down and began talking to him, and his, his nightstand drawer was open, and I saw a lot of crack in there. And, yeah, I'm pretty easy-minded and open, and but I don't like, if somebody's smoking crack, smoking meth, doing hardcore drugs like that, your chances of getting hurt are very high because they're unpredictable. So as I tried to make an excuse to leave, um, I told him I was going down to get my rig in the car because I just wanted to get out of the room. He started to panic and wouldn't let me leave. And I just had to reason with him to allow, you know, try and prove to him that, no, I'm not a cop. Nobody's going to come up here and after you. You're just high, dude. I'd love to get high with you, but I have to go get my stuff in the car. And I went down to the car and I left. That's just one instance. Another instance was showing up to a place at, in an apartment complex, and the gentleman I was supposed to see had given the agency the wrong apartment number, which was directly above his, basically to see me walking up and determine whether or not he wanted to see me. But when I walked, you know, I was leaving because obviously no one answered the door. He came out around the corner and he was like, hey, and at that time I was going by Jinx and he's like, hey, Jinx, you know, is that you? And I'm like, yes. And uh, I walked into an apartment with no furniture. And so my question was, I wanted to walk through the entire place and I could hear other people in the second bedroom and they, it was their plan to attack and, you know, rape, beat, rob one of the three options, if not all, um, because I heard them. And so I ran outside uh, and started to thank God he left the door open. So I ran outside and, and left. Um, I've not been physically hurt. Uh, but I also know self-defense and, you know, having your wits about you is very important. Um, and there's been other instances, but they're kind of along those same lines. I mean, mm. uh, with an agency in the past, it's not saying they're like this now, but in the past, um, you just never know who you were, who you were going to go see. That's scary. It, it can be. Yes. It, it's, it's different. It's definitely different. But um, I'd had such an interesting life before that <laughs> that it, my instinct is pretty good. Um, yeah. And so you were saying you started, and you, you were saying you have, um, when you started, did you, uh -huh. you were saying you were, a, were you a single mother when you started, or was that when I you came back? Single. Since 19, I got divorced in 1995. I'd been with my ex-husband for eight years. Part of our divorce agreement was uh, he was to not have any contact with myself or my children ever, and I would never ask him for child support. Hmm. And um, I just had to get out of that relationship. He was not a nice guy. So two years after we divorced um, is when I became an escort. 
And was, if, if you don't mind me asking, you said he wasn't a nice guy. Was there, was there domestic was violence, domestic violence issues? He was violent. Oh yes, absolutely. He was, uh, I was raised in a pretty affluent family and I was very naive when I met this, this guy at 18 years old and, uh, he was big into drugs and, you know, that whole world, uh, and he, he was violent. He was, um. He was an interesting character to be around. In hindsight, uh, I'm glad that we were together because I do adore my children and uh, grandchildren now. But uh, it, it's yeah, he was not a nice guy. <laughs> he, he sounds sounds yeah sounds like it. So again, you you were you were talking about how um, you were having some you you were, you were, things were going relatively well. Um, but at one point your, your family did discover what was happening and I guess, um, how did that happen and how did you handle that? There was an incident out of my hands, out of my control that occurred and, uh, I was detained and they, um, my parents needed to be called uh, to see if somebody could look after my children for a while. Um, it turned out that a while was just a mere 12 hours, but during that time, uh, my parents were called in hopes that you know they could come and collect my children. And unfortunately, uh, that is how they found out. And from that point on, um, you know, I have, I have a biological father as well as the father that raised me and my mom. All communication stopped. Everything stopped. I, I, was, I was not as close to my family as most kids were anyway, but this definitely stopped all communication. I was then thought of as a pariah. How I dealt with it, well, like I had just said, I wasn't very close to my family, and being as young as I was in my mid-20s, I had the attitude of, well, fuck you anyway. It's my life. And if you don't like what I do, well, that's too bad. Um, and that attitude, because of the ostracism, just kept, you know, has kind of, was a big change for me. And kind of been, it's my life. I'll do whatever I want because as a woman and as an individual, I can't. And if you don't like it, that's your problem, not mine. Not fair enough. <laughs> yeah. so my parents, my parents, uh, I told my parents that I left the industry in 2010. And I don't know whether they, um, and I did for some time. I, When I returned, I did not share my return with my folks. I don't know if they know or not. I'm sure they suspect, but they have a mutual respect for me as I do them. It's don't ask, don't tell. Um, you know, because since that time in the late 90s, I have repaired relationships with my parents. We are close. Uh, and so I don't, but I don't want them to know. It's none of their business. And I don't want them to think of me as, a bad person because of what I do. Unfortunately, that generation, um, the baby boomers, even though we were getting into the 60s, uh, you know, as they were teenagers and graduating college, starting careers, 
they don't think highly of ladies like myself. Um, they don't understand, I think. And so therefore they're going to go with whatever they were raised or or how their views are. They, they think it's a bad thing. Yeah, well, I mean, to, to be fair, I mean, I think not just that generation, society as a whole. Oh, um, society as a whole, but this newer society, this new, newer generation, um, like my kids' age, uh, they're all in their 20s, mid to late 20s. They really don't have the hang-ups and issues, and a lot of that just, in my belief, has to do with media and, you know, kind of how reality television, as crazy as it sounds, has broadened the minds in some instances, but it's also made it more of a, of a, I don't know. Well, I think, I think right now. They've made light of it, yeah. Yeah, I think right now it's a good, you're touching on some of the things that, um, that, that, that are the really controversial parts of, of what you do. Um, I just, uh-huh. I just sent you over an article um, on on, I messaged over an article. I don't know if you have your computer on you. Uh-huh. But um, if you check the article I just sent, um, then we're looking at the same thing, okay, and we can cut. We can kind of. I had to let the cat back out. That's <laughs> no, fine. <laughs> it's a funny cat. And um, just while you're while you're while you're checking that out, uh-huh. um, uh, so pretty much one of the things that I that I spent a lot of time in college studying. Um, my background is in psychology. I think I mentioned that a few times. Uh-huh. And uh, one of the things that I when I was in um, in my undergrad, uh, most of my stuff was done in race and racial relations for my research. But okay. as a side I don't know if I want to say it's a side project, but I felt as a, as part of my work in social justice, I also got into learning about feminism and um, and meeting other people that were advocates in different parts of the social justice uh, paradigm, from uh, LGBTQ issues to also women's issues. And this eventually led me to doing workshops. Actually, as a uh, I joined. I joined the Gender Equity Center, which used to be called the Women's Center, which was a center at my campus that mostly focused on feminism and women's issues. And as they kind of became more broad, I was one of the few guys that joined. So I was I was always, back then and still now, I was always very particular as to what I would say and how I would say it, um, especially knowing what I know about privilege, male privilege, and um, specific, specifically male privilege. I spent most of my time working with within the paradigm of race as um, being Puerto Rican and a person of color. I'm always coming, kind of coming from a perspective of race in which I do not hold a lot of privilege as far as race is concerned. And I never really studied the aspects of feminism to to understand my own privileges I had as a male. And at the end of the day, when I looked into it, I felt that um, 
not to say that any one issue is 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 larger than the other. They're all part of social justice, and they're not. I always say this. This is, I've mentioned this before. I'm sure my listeners are sick of me saying this. It's, it's not an oppression Olympics of who's more oppressed, as much as right. just being able to step out and and be able to note privilege where it stands. Um, that being said, um, some of the things that that have come up in feminism is is especially when it comes to escorting. You know, they're they're really a lot of there's a huge part of feminism working to take down escorting as part of uh, human trafficking. And they kind of, some of them don't separate these two concepts from each other. Some feel that they should not be separated and that they should be all in one. And some feel oh, that so some people, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yes, and then others feel oh, that, so that there should be two, these should be two different categories because you feel that it's consent. And that's why I wanted to talk to you about um, that. What I'm about to say is coming from from the Independent. It's an article in the Independent written, written by uh, by Julie Bindle, and her headline says, "Horophobia isn't a threat to feminism, but ignoring the abuse of women is. If consent has to be bought, it is not consent." Uh, and that's a lie. Okay. That's, now, oh, go ahead. And then, <laughs> no, no. And then my question to you. Is do you consider yourself a feminist? Uh, I don't really like that label. I, okay. I agree that we should be paid equally as men. That you know, there's a, definitely a difference. I guess yes, I would consider myself a feminist. Um, however, I don't consider that by being an escort that I'm not, or that I'm what I'm doing is wrong. It is purely my choice. Okay. Yeah. And um, yeah, there are a lot of women out there that feel as though we're being co- coerced, or because we have no other um, uh, career possibilities, that you know, oh well, she can't do anything else, so she's just going to be a hooker. You know, that's not true at all. Um, I believe that that's a demographic uh, issue as well. Having have the opportunity to work throughout the United States. Um, Escorting is seen differently by women in other areas. Kansas is obviously extremely conservative, and we're all evil whores that are going to hell. Uh, I think that if consent can be bought, it still is consent. However, that said, there are a lot of girls, and um, and this is the trafficking that I'm about to speak of is not the women coming in from other countries, you know, in the big ports of call, Houston, San Francisco, New York. These are girls that come from lower income neighborhoods whose parents are just gone. You, you know, it's a problem. And they get their positive strokes by an individual, a guy, who, you know, tells them they're beautiful, says this, that, or the other. And slowly but surely, these girls get what is called turned out. And they become escorts that way. They have a pimp, um, which is different than from working for an agency, in my opinion. Um, and, you know, these girls that are being pimped out, uh, a lot of them are underage. A lot of them, you know, they feel as though they're trapped and they don't have any outlets or don't know what to do if they want to say no because they've made their lives so dependent upon this person um, that, uh, you know, they end up, in my opinion, being trafficked. Um, 
it's unfortunate, but it does happen. You know, sex without consent is wrong uh, on any level. But um, that, as far as what's happening in the United States locally, that's generally how, you know, a girl gets into the industry in the very beginning. Um, if she's from a lower income area and is very pretty and some guy sees the money-making potential of her, that's common. Um, the sex trafficking that I think on the bigger picture, the worldwide global picture, um, is horrendous. That is just, it's just, it's an awful, awful thing. And I mean, being in this industry, especially as long as I have, I've followed sometimes, you know, the rabbit hole and it goes deeper and deeper into more and more awful stories about what happens to these girls and boys. It's not just a woman thing. Um, and so that's why I have the belief, along with WHO, Doctors Without Borders, that legal de uh, decriminalization on a global scale is probably the only thing that is going to allow the actual traffickers, people that are you know, trafficking, get caught. Um, and it's never going to be stopped, but it could put a dent in the trafficking that does go on uh, in both areas. Um, I've worked with girls who were underage and have told me stories on how they started. And they're, they're trying to build their lives and, and be out of the industry because they look at it as such an ugly thing. But it's not because they gave their consent in the beginning to do it. Most of the girls were had a boyfriend a lot older than they were. And next thing you know, he's making them screw his friends. And he's getting paid, but she's not. And yet, all of a sudden... Not only does she have that stigma of being in the industry, you know, by friends, family, whatever, um, but then also, like I said, she's tied herself to one individual that he becomes her controller. Um, you know, globally, it's it, it's hard to speak about because there's it's just such a vast, vast topic in itself. No, it is. And I think um, you're actually touching, and that's why I wanted to ask you, did you, um, when you were, uh, I, I didn't even ask earlier, you, you were saying you, you went to work, you you, uh, you got out of an abusive relationship. Did you ever go to pursue a, a degree in, in, oh, a higher, yes. in higher education? Oh my God, okay. yes. I, I, yeah, I did. I, I went to college. Um, and what did you and, study? Well, what what did you study? What did you major in? I actually English, oh. ironically. Um, <laughs> but I did not go to college until I was thirty. Okay. I because I was you know I got married at eighteen. I met my ex. I moved out of my parents' house pretty much two days after I turned eighteen. Met my ex husband months later. Married, you know, and didn't go to college. However, uh, I at one point I decided. Um, I had been working in corporate America uh, in residential land development, and I asked my boss one day, why am I doing all of the same work that so-and-so is doing, but he makes $100,000 more than me, and I'm just your secretary when I'm doing all this work? And he kind of patted me on the head and said, honey, I wouldn't care if you had your degree in national forestry. You don't have a degree. I can't treat you like that. Um, and I'm like, okay, so. <laughs> what an asshole. Uh, 
So um, earlier I kind of laughed when you said you were an English major and I, I didn't laugh to be an asshole. Uh, it's just coincidental because I'm an ESL teacher. That's my, that's okay. my, that's my nice. day job is I, I teach. I looked into that, honestly. I, I really would have done that wholeheartedly if I could have taken my kids with me. Well, well to be honest, I, I couldn't stand English in college. And that, that's why I'm not an English major. <laughs> oh, well, I'm English. Yeah, yeah, I, I, it, was, it was too much for me. Um, so that I, I was more interested in psychology and that's why, um, right. when I did the research and I found out that I could have a, a degree, I can have a degree from any native English speaking country to be able to teach ESL overseas, specifically Japan. I felt, why am I going to torture myself studying something that I'm not interested in? So I, I studied psychology instead. And then later nice. when I entered the field, learned everything I needed to know to teach English. But that's why I laughed. I just it's wanted like, to mention that because right, people right, might be listening like, what an asshole. Like, he just laughed at her major, right? So, <laughs> no, 
it was it wasn't like I was laughing at you. I was kind of reflecting on my own personal thing. I totally get it. I kind of figured along those lines, but you know, I get it. I totally get it. So, um, going back to the article, I just want to read to you this this paragraph because you were saying earlier off camera how how much the how the headline really pissed you off and set you off. So yes. I, I kind of want to just talk about it is it's controversial, right? So, so on one hand, you know, you're saying that it's been very empowering to you to be able to have this choice, to be able to to work around the system, start your own business, and you enjoy it, and you made a choice, and you did consent. And from you right. saying you 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 gave your you have your consent. You in your personal experience, you come from an affluent family. Um, and you also made a distinction earlier when you were talking about the differences between human trafficking and escort services, working for for valid agencies as opposed to being forced into the trade. And you've met women who were forced into that type yes. of work. And you come from a stance saying that if it was legal, that this wouldn't be an issue. Like if it, if it was something no, that was no, legal. No, there's a, wait, wait, wait. But there's a, there is a very distinct term. Okay. Decriminalization versus legality. Oh, okay. I'm not saying make it legal. I'm saying decriminalize, decriminalize it. it. Okay. And therefore you don't have people, you know, looking behind the shadows going, "Oh my god, oh my god." I mean, if it's not a crime, it doesn't necessarily have to be legal, but it's not, you know, it's like working in San Francisco. If you get arrested for prostitution, it's not the same as getting arrested for prostitution in Chicago. Okay. I'm not going to be charged with a felony. All right. um, you know, so you're not talking about legal, uh, just to clarify it, what you said and what, my, what people might hear and think. You're not right. saying it should be legal. You're saying it should be decriminalized, like. Um, I I think that it's it, well. I think it should be legal. However, any first step starts with decriminalization. Okay. I mean, look at what's happening with marijuana. Mm -hmm. The first steps that states took was decriminalizing it. You know, taking the penalties off the table if you get caught with marijuana. That should be the same in prostitution. Legalizing it, I think. You know would be a miracle but probably not going to happen in this country in my lifetime and then it from your and again i always mention to my listeners and i mentioned it to you earlier it's not like you're the spokesperson for no, for the sex no. industry you're just talking from your own personal experiences and um personal experience and kind of going reflecting on that from from your standpoint you feel that decriminalization would actually help be able to to bring down the human trafficking because then people that want to be a part of the industry can do so voluntarily and not be forced into it is that no not so much that it's that the, those of us that do it voluntarily and um oh how <sighs> those of us that do it voluntarily that give our consent to do it you know can keep on happily on our own way girls that aren't if it's decriminalized, you know, uh, I think that uh, girls that are working against their consent would be, I, I don't know how to answer the question. I don't know how to formulate the words I'm thinking. Okay. It would, um, oh my goodness. I can't, I honestly can't, I know the answer, but I can't think of it right now. No, that's um, fine. That's fine. Um, I think that by yeah. 
so so again so again this idea that um it would make it easier for those who choose to do the work to do so without feel without without fear of prosecution now that doesn't necessarily mean and i i think the same thing can be can be said looking at how marijuana was made legal as well in in some states is that just because marijuana was made legal doesn't mean that now suddenly you can start handing it out to minors right the but within there's constructs within the laws to still because I, I think one of the things they love to do in politics, and this is something I learned in sociology, was um, was how politicians like to feed into fears. And the idea of of making people fear for their children has been a tool in every political campaign that has ever been put out by any politician. As soon as they start talking, whenever they start talking about being harder on laws, they always talk about protecting your families, protecting your kids. And kids are always kind of flashed out there to start the fear to to make something illegal. Um, exactly. So so like again, you're not saying, and I want to make this very clear to to the listeners and people watching was, is that you're not saying that 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 you approve of human trafficking. Human trafficking is a horrible thing. Um, minors, Absolutely. minors, and people that that um, that are should not be forced into into a industry that they don't want to be in in no one should be forced to be in that industry no matter what their age is and you're saying if it was decriminalized it would make it easier for people that do choose to do it to continue to do so but at the same time if you didn't have to worry about it being criminalized you can have a proper license you can you don't have to be worrying about being on a watch list anymore and now you can kind of run it more like a business therefore now law enforcement can kind of when they do find someone operating outside of that they can they yes. can come down on it easier. It will be easier to find human Absolutely. traffickers because then they Absolutely. can actually come That's... in, inspect the facilities, yeah. see who the workers are, uh, investigate, and look for people who are working outside of those parameters. Well, it'll be easier to find people. I mean, that group of people will go underground. I mean, they're underground now, but yeah. I believe that decriminalization will help to identify and isolate those types of folks easier instead of wasting their time on people now. who who like yourself right. have made this choice and are running it more like a, a business uh yes. no you're it running it like a business it's an, it's an entrepreneurship so going back to the article <laughs> one of the things it said um as far as theory is concerned um was that younger fourth wave feminists today are more likely to be offended by abolitionists campaigning to end the sex trade than by pimping and sex buying. Um, countless academics, all of whom would describe themselves as progressives, insist that sex work is empowering and nothing other than a choice. And this is com- these, are be- these are being called fourth wave feminists. So for you people listening, uh, for my listeners and other people, you do have to realize that when we say feminist, there's a lot of different camps of feminism. So just to be very, Absolutely. very, very clear, fourth wave feminists are the ones that are the ones that would be offended by abolitionists campaigning to end the sex trade. Um, and there's academics who would describe themselves as progressives and insist that sex work is empowering. So it's the fourth wave feminists are, that are that are kind of pushing for this progressive stance of saying that more along the lines of what you're talking about right now. 
While radical feminists understand women as a sex class and seek to dismantle the structural oppression of male supremacy, uh, fourth wave or liberal feminists view women as unconnected individuals with individual choices. Liberals Absolutely. tend also to focus on the choices available to women rather than the choices denied to them. Um, and then, then she goes on to put her, the author, um, uh, Julie Bindle goes on to to associate herself more as um, um, let me see here understand let me make sure I understand this theory <laughs> understand women as sex class and seek to dismantle the structural oppression fourth wave or liberal fe okay so she identifies more as a radical feminist it seems because then she goes into this argument right. that um, um whether they accept this or not, men, okay, it's no wonder that feminists who learn their politics in universities have steeped in a culture of neoliberal choice politics. The, you know, the term neoliberal bothers the fuck out of me. I've seen, oh my, I've why? seen, I don't know if you saw this on my Facebook the other day, but I was saying how the new type of liberal is uh, to be a real, I don't know. I, I honestly don't, I, I shy away from saying prepackaged. I, I do not, to, to kind of quote, Daniel Bolelli on this one from his uh, from his History on Fire podcast. Um, he he was talking about uh, Roosevelt and the politics back then, and how these terms that people throw out there liberal and progress well, progressive was later, but liberal and conservative, they are like prepackaged ideologies that people adhere to. Um, yes. It's like a Coca-Cola brand, and this happens with the ideas of Republican and Democrat, and this happens a lot with what happens a lot when you have uh, when you start labeling things, you end up with these prepackaged ideologies that people are like, okay, because I'm a liberal and I don't identify with this other person saying they are liberal. Well, we we both can't be liberals and think this way, so I'm gonna come up with a new identity for this person that I don't like. And I've seen people right. being called neoliberal. I've seen, I've seen Green Party members being called neoliberals. I've seen Green Party members calling Democrats neoliberals. I've seen Bernie advocators calling Hillary supporters neoliberal. I've seen Hillary supporters calling Bernie supporters neoliberal. Right. And this weird term neoliberal has become just a really strange topic. Um, when I when I saw I've I came across neoliberal before the whole before the last election, 2016 election, I came across that term in a sociology book talking about racism and how, if, how is it, uh, this was written by a sociologist named Eduardo Bonilla Silva, and he talked about how, he talks, he writes in his book, Racism Without Racists, how is it, like his inquiry was colorblind racism, racism without racists was the name of the book, if you want to check it out on Amazon. Um, he talked about how, the persistence of racism, if you talk to people, if racism exists, they'll say it doesn't. Like, or they'll say that racism is a problem, but they're themselves not racist. And he was kind of looking into the inquiry of this idea, well, then how come racism persists even though the majority of people, um, be specific, the majority of, of white folk, uh, do not on surveys, on, on, on surveys read by social scientists and psychologists, they don't answer the questions and they don't come off as quote they don't identify as racist you know they don't say oh i'm racist I'm, right. 
It's a, and, and and the ones that do are kind of like your Archie Bunkers, your your ten percenters of, of that right. are part of those right wing right wing like uh, Nazi groups and white supremacist groups. Those are the racists. But the rest of the people, like like you and me, they're not really racist, but they adhere to white supremacist ideology but they're not racist and this is and then he called and then in his book he he referred to these kind of people as neoliberal now but that was back then that's the first time i came across it so now when i see people like this person calling people neoliberals because of choice politics and identity politics which is interesting that she's talking about identity politics because within that there's identity politics happening in in this write-up so (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> again it, if it was if it was easy i wouldn't be able to do a podcast on it um exactly so yeah there's definitely open hostility according to the article there's open hostility from pro-prostitution academics to those scholars who deviate from the pro-prostitution line those academics advocating right. on behalf of the sex trade are hardly harmless ineffectual individuals in ivory towers publishing papers nobody reads rather they are powerful activists using their academic positions and credentials to exert influence on prostitution policy as members of national and international research bodies. It is concerning that research deferring to sex trade ideology and not academically sound evidence often ends up informing this discussion with detrimental consequences for women's and girls. Women, women's. <laughs> for women and girls. Albeit positive consequences for those profiting from this regime of violence, quote unquote. What a, what a crazy sentence! A regime Kendall. of violence. I mean, yes, violence does occur, but uh, this is a choice. I mean, this is a this was a a sober choice I made. I mean, this was something that I decided to do for myself and my family, and because I made that choice, I believe I told you earlier off camera that you know growing up i didn't have a voice i lived in a very um, controlling household do this do that um you must go to school you must participate in these you know activities like girl scouts and you know church and crap like that um that's what you're supposed to do uh and i went along with it when i was married because i picked a guy that was so unlike my family um you know and there he was extremely violent and I didn't have a voice then Um, when we divorced in 95 I started finding my voice but for the first time in my life I was free so to speak I didn't I was responsible for my own self by becoming jazz then I had to I, I was empowered I mean I had to become empowered because I had to set boundaries yes you can do that no you can't do that I had to ensure that an hour is an hour 90 minutes is 90 minutes. There's no deviation from time. And um, being able, that's, it's through the sex industry that I found my voice. And, you know, because of the empowerment that occurs when you're running your own business, because it's not just about putting up an ad saying, oh, hey, I'm here, come see me. You know, you've got a website. I design my own website. I write my own ads. I do all of my own marketing. I mean, it, it's not an easy task. You've got photo shoots to worry about. You have to maintain your appearance and your performance. Um, and that's all. And I run it all myself. It's completely up to me. Nobody does it for me. 
and I'm not the only one. Um, leaving Kansas in 2005 and moving to Phoenix and meeting other women in the industry who were proud of and, and told people, yes, I'm a prostitute. Yes, this is what I do for a living. Amazed me, shocked me, but it also empowered me even more. And as time went on, and then when I moved to Northern California, I tried to get involved towards decriminalization, towards helping girls that don't have a voice find their voice, you know, how, um, trying to discover avenues for women that were involved in this industry that didn't want to be on how to get out and how to become a productive person of society without having that scarlet letter. Oh my God, she was a hooker. I mean, that's, it's, it's quite incredible. This, this article, to me, it doesn't sound feminist at all. It sounds like a bitchy woman <gasps> probably just doesn't know, is not in touch with her own sexuality and has thrown this together to uh, just to seem better than those of us that actually choose this. Well, you know, to, to be, you know, to, I, I get, I'm not, and going to my listeners, I, I, I um, so as a man, um, I always, I'm always very reserved. I've always been reserved when I'm talking about feminist issues because even when I this uh-huh. this came up when I was when I was advocating for feminism on campus, um, I was asked, "Do I identify as a feminist?" And I had to really ask myself this because I realized that when I started telling people I'm a feminist, other feminists get, got upset and offended and angry that men some feminists feel that men have no place in the feminist movement um they they do as allies but as spokespersons they need to shut the fuck up take a seat in the back and let let women be the the forefront let let a woman be the forefront for pe- feminism to speak out for their rights and and whatnot while other feminists believe that um an ally for a man to be a good ally is to know when to step back and let a woman take charge and speak and speak her mind and be in the front but it's also to be able to be in spaces that women aren't in and speak up for women in those spaces um yes and so so for me i'm i'm always very reserved when i start saying okay i identify as a radical feminist or i identify as a fourth wave feminist because when I start looking, I have to really look into what that means and whether me identifying right. as that is going to upset the rest of the group. And I've always been against labels. That's my other thing. So oh, I, I would rather <laughs> just go back to saying, you know, I, I, a lot of the things that I, I, I agree with many concepts that come from feminism. And as far as her stance, you know, she has a book that she's writing about, about, about uh, human trafficking. And that's that's what she that's mm-hmm. the, if you look at the bottom of the article she talks about how I, yeah, I saw that. she's yeah. looking she's looking more she's looking at more human trafficking and 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 fears that that legalizing prostitution um, if there's no limits put it's just gonna open uh, create a slippery slope into more women being hurt by human trafficking um, within the sex industry paradigm. And you know she's she's encountered more people. Well, not not not, not more people. It's because she's focusing her book on talking to people who were you know victimized. 
Right. Um, that's why she has such a strong stance, and she, she ends her article um, with, in a world where the bodies of women and girls are being viewed as products to be bought or sold, it's more important than ever to resist the market in misery and to challenge those who fight for the right of women to be abused. She's taken this stance... Because again, she's she's looking at it from her perspective and the people she's interviewed. She's gotten she's gotten really into that dark side of women who are being victimized. Um, and they're horrible, horrible stories. I yeah, mean, horrible stories. And what you're saying is, you know, you've you've you from your you've used your position of of privilege, um, from being able to have not been victimized to make that choice, and you've met women that didn't get to make that choice. And you've helped these women get out. Essentially, you're doing the same work that that the author of this article is doing, and you're actually on the street. Like she's funny because she's talking about how she traveled around the world. She interviewed people. Um, it takes money to travel around the world, so she's Absolutely. coming from a position of privilege to be able to do this. She talks about right. people for Ivory Towers publishing papers, but this paper is published, right? Well, and. That's kind of and then my question to you is did you did you study feminism in school like did no. you, okay so look this no. is the here's the deal <laughs> here's the fucking irony in all this bullshit you're working within the, the trade you're doing things you said you have a hard time with the identity of a feminist but you do believe in feminism this person identifies as a radical feminist um yes and proceeds to bash acad academia, but at the same time, I can tell comes from an academic background that studied feminism. You did not study right. feminism, but this person has a lot of choice words for someone like you from the position you took. That from my, from what I'm seeing, is the same kind of disconnect. The same kind of disconnect that she's accusing um, fourth wave feminists of, of not knowing what it's like to be victimized. It's coming from someone who really relatively doesn't know all sides of something and came from a background that uh, kind of far removed from the street. I don't know her personally, so I can't say anything. Right. I, I can only say that um, I, for me personally, I was brought up in a, in a, in a pretty rough neighborhood and, um, and it, it's, there, was, uh, there, was, there was human trafficking occurring, there was drug gang violence. Being from the street and, uh, and later entering academia, I always felt as an outsider um, like I was wearing a mask. And it was funny because I went to this social justice seminar and I talked to this other guy who I can tell who's from the city. This guy's from the hood. I can tell. Like I looked at him and I'm like, this guy's from the hood. He's like me. And I, I could tell right away because I can just tell. Uh, if, you're from, if you're from the hood, you know someone else who's from the hood. It's really simple. Right. Um, the way they carry themselves, exactly. the way they talk, the way they make eye contact, the way they avoid eye contact, it, it, you just know. So like, right. when, when I finally got some time to the side with this dude, I'm like, so what's up, man? How, how the fuck did you get here? And he's like, and he's like, what do you mean? I'm like, you know what I mean. Like, where are you from? Like, <laughs> I was really like, don't, don't fucking lie to me. Like, dude, like. Where are you from? You're from Oside? And he's like, and he's like, yeah, I'm from Oside. I'm like, all right, Posola. He's like, I know the gangs that are from there. I know. I was oh, never right. in a gang, yeah. but I know. So, like, we got to a heart-to-heart, -heart, and I was telling him about how I was helping a friend of mine. How I was helping a friend of mine. Um, he, he was dealing with a case in Oregon, and I had to get him out before, um, before, he get, before he ended up getting arrested. 
I had to get them out of Oregon. And um, just just some, some street stuff. Like, so because of this, because of me coming from the street, I've always kind of navigated academia and been able to spot people who... Ugh, it always fucking irked me when I saw people talking like they were from the street because they talked to someone from the street, but they don't not right. fucking don't know what the but fuck they they're talking it. about because they're so disconnected from it. And to hear them talk about an ivory tower and not realizing they're in an ivory tower while talking about the ivory tower has always pissed me off. I can openly admit I'm in a fucking ivory tower. I wasn't always in an ivory tower, but I am in one now. I mean, I'm far, far, far removed from the U.S. Um, and my 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 start was on the streets, but now I'm I'm in a very comfortable position in my life, and I can openly admit that. I'm not trying to... I'm not trying to gain any street credit, and I'm not taking away taking away street credit from what it's at. But from what you're talking about, you know, you didn't study feminism. You lived it, and that's where your perspective is coming from. Right. Right. And, you know, going back to the author, um, I did just a quick and easy kind of look up of who she is. She's coming from an academic standpoint, as you said, but she mostly has worked with the victims. I mean, one of her largest advocacies is for women that have suffered domestic abuse and who killed their partners because of the abuse they suffered. So she's looking at it from a very, I don't want to say negative, but very different point of view. Yeah, different point Whereas of view. She's, I, she's coming from the other, from the other that, side of the perspective, right? Yes, I think that if she had... A more broad mind and had interviewed an equal amount of ladies that were um you know that have made the choice to do this which you know she's mostly she's worked ex pretty much exclusively in europe not so much here in the united states um i'm sure she has seen a lot of the trafficking you know the, the cd side of it talking to the victims and i can somewhat understand her views on it but it, it's not all or nothing I mean, no industry is, and the sex industry definitely is not. It's not all or nothing. You know, there's the majority, pretty much 99% of the women I've met in this industry have done this and entered into this by choice. Um, it, it's very rare for me, in my instance, uh, to come across a person who's doing it against their will. And again, it's not, it's, it's not saying yeah. what, I, what I want to clear up. We're not saying that doesn't happen. And I'm sure right, I, right. We, we, you're, you're throwing out the number 99% for yourself, but statistically, myself, statistically yes. speaking, the, the statistics don't support that number. Just for your individual, from your oh, individual experiences, because, I mean, right? There's not very many but, women out there that are going to sit there and openly admit what they and, do for a living. And again, like how, again, it's really difficult when you're talking about the underground, it's really difficult to get accurate statistics about something that's being hidden from society. Um, and again, very clear, human trafficking is fucking wrong, okay? Yes. <laughs> if there's yes. anything you can walk away from this conversation, if you're throwing, if you're throwing objects at the computer screen right now, or you, you're tearing your, your headphones off your head because <laughs> you're pissed off thinking that we're, we're advocating for human trafficking, we are, I'm not, and not from the sounds all. of it, you're not at all. Not all. Um, you're just talking about the idea that, um... But, you know, you you mentioned earlier about how it's not 100%. It's not all or nothing, right? But the problem with the problem with that is that that doesn't sell a book. <laughs> well, you're exactly right. I mean, I've been, seriously, I've been told 
sit down to write a book or sit down to, um, like I told you, I was approached by people in uh, Los Angeles about doing a TV show when I left the industry and moved back, moved up to Northern California in 2010, um, that you know, they weren't interested in my story or my reasons why I was leaving. They just were doing it merely for, um, you know, the the money that could possibly have, you know, come about from such things. I mean, there's a lot of people that have a vast misunderstanding. So, you know, we're kind of getting to our, to our winding down process, our, our closing statements, kind of finishing up the show here. But, um... As I'm wrapping things up here, before before we finish, I wanted to ask you, um, what's your advice to to anyone who might be interested in in the in becoming an escort, as well as what's your advice for anyone who was a victim of human trafficking to get out of that industry? What what, are, what, um, what would be something that you would want to say? With, with for the women that are being trafficked to get out of the industry. Um, that's a tough one because they uh, it, it would depend on I don't know it really doesn't depend on anything it's it, it's mostly dependent on finding a safe place and uh, being able to it's like going to an embassy when you're in another country and throwing yourself at their mercy and saying help me um, but in some instances people that are trafficked they don't have that opportunity. So if they, you know, if they come across someone um, that's visiting with them, that seems, you know, that they could get help them and say, "Hey, can you help me?" Uh, it's getting, you know, being able to have the freedom to go somewhere and seek out the help. There are organizations that are out there that can help women. Um, Do you know the names of any of these? One of them is S. Uh, SWOP, and unfortunately, I cannot off the top of my head. Um, uh, SW it is e. Um, I will have to find the meaning for you. It's a sex workers organization that helps women who are being trafficked. Trafficked. It's prevalent in Los Angeles. It was started in LA. Okay. Um, Try and find if you can get if you can get to a phone or somewhere to call someone and say I'm being trafficked. Help me. Oh, okay. Um, so are you talking that, about the yeah. sex workers outreach project? Yes, that's it. That's okay. What was meant to say. So that's at um for anyone listening, that's at www and I'll have a absolutely I'll have a, a link for that on the on my website and i mean if anyone suspects that someone's being trafficked i mean instead of jumping to the conclusion you know ask the person themselves i mean communication is key and too many people don't communicate they just assume or you know kind of don't do anything but they just need to ask you know are you safe are you okay um, as far as women getting into the industry, and I speak again just from the United States aspect of it, um, it's not as easy as people think. A person, you need to be, number one, keep yourself safe, uh, and not just from the law, but sexually safe. Um, you know, practicing safe sexual activity. 
and you know going to the doctor and making sure yes i'm healthy you know sexually to do this it um you know making sure that you've done your research as far as what kind of people are you looking to see um you know type in whatever city you're in for instance uh san francisco escorts and or how to become an escort and there are so much information out there on how to become an escort but the most important thing i believe is setting yourself up when you're online to make yourself you know you want to you have to be secure in your internet security you've got to be secure with your location um it's not just as easy as oh i'm gonna do this and it'll be great you don't see the good looking you know fabulous sexy guys most of the time you just don't it's not about aesthetics a girl that is wanting to get into this um needs to be able to hold a conversation with pretty much anyone from any walk of life because you don't know even though you've had email communication you've heard from another person okay he's safe to see in regards to the potential for violence or but the potential of getting arrested but you don't really know that person you never know who what personality is walking through the door and um you have to be able to adjust yourself also a lot of problem with some girls is you know they get into the industry and when you're new and the latest and greatest thing to hit the scene you'll get a lot of business you'll have a lot of a huge influx of cash and unfortunately what i have seen happen over and over is these girls just don't know what to do with their cash they meet a client who's going to have drugs available during the appointment and they get hooked and that is a problem as well you know the alcoholism and the drug abuse in the industry um it's 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 easy to get involved in because you've got you know we are seen as uh you know when a client contacts you they want somebody that's not going to judge nag bitch you know they just want to sit back have a good time you know leave feeling satisfied in every way a little lighter in the wallet but they want to be happy and unfortunately a lot of that involves you know substances um whether it's alcohol weed or harder core drugs um that's a trap that you have to be aware is there and um just awareness is key awareness is the most important thing in my mind that any person can do if they're even thinking about getting into the industry because it's not like the HBO shows or the client list or all of these television shows that are skewed to make it look so glamorous it's not as glamorous as one would think it's a lot of work um for every client i see that has used provider references meaning they didn't go through a a company that screens them for me so it takes 5 minutes for me to find out if they're okay to see or not i spend 2 hours on average getting a person cleared that's before i even set the appointment that's you know after the communication the initial communication you go back and forth sometimes to get all the information you need just to get them screened just to write another girl to say hey have you seen this guy you know that can it's it's a huge amount of time that you commit yourself to and it's not just about your online presence it's about branding it's a you know marketing um keeping yourself healthy 
uh, I'm very fortunate to be as old as I am, and I look young just because I follow a, a healthy diet. I drink a ton of water. Is that to say I'm not the party girl? Well, I have been in the past, um, but I've also kind of left that behind also. So there's a lot more involved than just, oh, I'm a pretty girl and I like to do this or that or the other with men. It's a business. It is truly a business. Um, just in my region, the demographic region of the Midwest, I'm on 63 websites. And I have to go out at times and I have to find myself because a lot of websites will start up and they'll take my information from other sites to build their content. And at that point, they can say or use my ad in whatever way they want. So I have to go claim them. And then I choose whether or not I want to keep that ad up or if I'd say, you know what, I don't want to be a part of this site. Quit using my information. And you, but you have to find those sites and tell them that yourself. Um, you know, and then, of course, there's the outing that can occur. If you are not, if a woman is not, or a man, is not prepared to deal with the consequences of their actions by becoming a part of the sex industry, they probably shouldn't do it. Because when you, if your family is in any way opposed to that industry, it's, it's crippling and it's very hard. I mean, I feel like for at least 10, 15 years, I just was in a complete defensive mode constantly, not just with friends or not just with family, but also with friends because surely because they don't understand. Um, I really am a shrink. You get someone naked and happy and satisfied. It's amazing what they open up and tell you. I've heard deep, dark secrets and, you know, things that I just am like, wow, okay. But impartiality is important as well. You truly cannot be a person who will sit in judgment of your clients when you're doing what you do. Um, you really need to be as open-minded as possible, but also, on that note, stick to your boundaries. No means no, whether you're in this by consent or not. I mean, no means no. And if I tell someone no and they choose to pursue what they want to pursue, you can bet, boy, they see a mighty pissed off woman. I'll get straight on their ass real quick. <laughs> no. Um, but it's a lot more uh, than it's a lot more than just showing up and being pretty and getting on your knees. It's a lot more than that. And um, it can be mentally exhausting as well. In 2010, I walked away completely. I just couldn't deal with, you know, being a provider anymore. I was sick and tired of feeling like it had become very routine. Um, you know, working with other women can be very, very taxing because you have these women and you feel, oh, my God, these girls are great. They're my friends. We're a beautiful group. And you don't realize until they burn you that yes, we're friends, but we're also competition at the end of the day. So it can it can be very isolating. Um, it, it, being you know being in the industry as long as I've been uh, through the years, and especially dealing with st stalkers and men who just cannot fathom that I'm not in love with them because they're having such an explosive body experience. 
in their mind, they think, oh my God, she made this happen to me, so she must love me. And if I convince her, she'll come be with me and me only. That's a scary, scary part of the industry and something that most girls don't understand or know how to handle. Um, you know, it's, it's, not, it's not all, you know, cake and ice cream being in the sex industry it can be very it can be very taxing and i think that as an individual who may think about getting into this um you know practicing things such as meditation yoga being away from technology you know shutting down your computer not having your business connected to your mobile phone so every five minutes your phone isn't going off with you've got a new email you've got you know somebody liked this you know or somebody responded on your website or responded to a thread you know it, it can be overwhelming and um there is it, it it can get too much um when i came back to the industry i started tentatively and then made a decision to go in you know full force ahead again and uh and put my effort into making jazz as you know, positive and marketing myself in a way so that people know what they're getting. Um, you know, marketing is very important. You have to know who it is you want to be your clients. And uh, that's why my website is a little more unusual than other providers because my personality, I feel, especially in my question and answer page, comes through. You're not getting the saccharine, oh, hi. My name is Jazz, and I am an eclectic bundle of energy that, la, 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 you know, that's not me. I'm like, you know, this is me. This is who I am. Um, I had friends while I was, you know, testing my site. Tell me, my God, I feel like I can hear your voice giving me these answers. Um, so, you know, that's important, too. You want to set yourself apart, but, you know, you also want to be... You want to have community around you. You know, you need the community to help keep you safe. And uh, there, are, it's it's a very interesting world. If I had the opportunity to go back to, you know, 1996, 97, when I very first got into it, when I absolutely, it's, you know, for as, it's a balance, and I finally found the balance. And it wasn't just something that needed to happen as jazz. It needed to happen in my personal self as well. I mean, I did all of this while raising three daughters, and they did not know until they were older. I mean, like, late teens, and it was my oldest daughter that came to me and just straight out asked, are you an escort? Well, I'm also a parent that believed in age-appropriate honesty. So I said yes. Yeah, I told her the truth. Um, and because of my openness, you know, my children are, they've always been free to come to me and talk about things and they're friends. I don't just, you know, talk about being open and being safe and all this without sharing. I have had parents, even some of my family, come to me and say, how do I talk to my kids about sex? How do I talk to them about being safe? Because... This whole concept of abstinence is ridiculous. Um, and, you know, when someone comes along and their 14-year-old child is pregnant and they don't know what to do, it's like, well, you need to teach your kids about this also. I mean, so 
probably a very long answer. <laughs> no, 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 that's no, that's that's if um. Seriously considering being an escort, they need to do as much research as possible, and more importantly, in my mind, make sure that you're mentally ready. Um, make sure you know what your boundaries are, what you will put up with, and what you won't, and stick to it. I mean, always stick to your boundaries because that's what keeps you safe. And never, ever take an appointment out of desperation or greed because that's when you mess up, you know, make mistakes and you could get, you know, get with the wrong client or you get busted by Ellie. All right. Well, um, I want to thank you very much for being on the show. As a, welcome. Thanks for having me. As a, as a final note, um, again, this, uh, this episode was, um, was about kind of looking at the concepts of the, of prostitution and feminism, as well as the sex industry, the escort industry, and the different paradigms between that. Um, again, this is, uh, I'm trying to be as objective as possible and just present the information for what it is. Um, of course, I have my personal opinions on the matter, but uh, I'm not. I'm trying to stay away from my personal perspective on it and just kind of share a perspective that is different. And I really want to thank you for sharing your perspective with my listeners and people out there who never. I mean, I, I like I said, I've never. I never have never really I have no I had no idea about it and that's why I approached you in the first place and I just want to thank you for being so honest and um and expressing how you feel about it well you're welcome that's something I'm absolutely known for is my brute honesty <laughs> it gets me in trouble sometimes <laughs> well don't ever lose it you you, you got something good there <laughs> all right everyone well, I'll catch you all later. Thank you for checking out Social Jello with Angelo. As always, two episodes. We try to, I try to do two a month and uh, try to get them out there. Have a good one and have a great week. Peace.